there's more to zero trust than meets the eye. Welcome to this edition of CDM Media's Solution Spotlight. Today, we're going to dive into what is needed in a CISO checklist to develop a zero trust architecture. I'm going to be joined by Tari Schreider, Strategic Advisor to IT Navarica Group, and Mitch Ween, Head of Financial Services Executive Partner Service, as we look to unpack the best path to zero trust. IT Navarica Group is an advisory firm providing mission critical insights on technology, regulations, strategy, and operations to hundreds of banks, insurers, payment providers, and investment firms, as well as the technology and the service providers that support them. When we come back, Tari and Mitch. An expert in cybersecurity, risk management, and disaster recovery, Tari Schreider is the strategic advisor to IT Navarica Group and was formerly chief security architect at Hewlett Packard Enterprise and national practice director for security and disaster recovery at Sprint eSolutions. Mitch is a former CIO and CTO and also a chief architect at AXA and divisional CTO at AIG. So we're excited to welcome Tari and Mitch to the podcast. Welcome, gentlemen. Well, thank you, JD. I'm so excited for this. So I'm excited to pick your brain on Zero Trust. And we recently had governing board members, Dr. Chase Cunningham, known as Dr. Zero Trust on our show, and also had the father of Zero Trust and John Kindervatch as a speaker joining Chase at our Chicago Summit. Even they were amazed at how Zero Trust has taken off. As a matter of fact, in April, Microsoft published the results of a global research study around 900 senior security decision makers around the adoption of Zero Trust strategy. Now, this isn't going to be shocking to you guys, but 96% of those participants stated that Zero Trust is their number one priority. So Mitch, I want to start with you. Talk to me about the genesis of this IT Navarica Group's analysis of NIST SP 800-207 around zero trust. It's very timely. What was your goal of this deep dive? Absolutely. Thank you, JD. Well, firstly, as you know, the IT Navarica Group uh, emerged recently from the merger of IT and Novarica. And so we've extended the executive partner service that had existed in the Heritage Novarica organization for insurers to uh, other financial services verticals, including banking, uh, wealth management, and securities. Now, as we expanded that, we're looking to target certain personas that would best use this executive partner service. And those personas include CIOs, CTOs and heads of architecture, and CISOs. So we looked at what was the most important thing to an executive level owner of security in banking or wealth management or security, securities right now. And it turns out that zero trust came to the top of the list as the thing that just about everybody is talking about right now in financial services. So our thought was to kick off the executive partner service for the CISOs, we would focus in on the topic that we knew would generate a lot of conversation and the research that we knew would be most helpful to that group of people right now. Interesting. One thing with a, a fundamental belief, I guess, of adopting zero trust, without which there could be no zero trust, is that attackers are 
already present in the IT estate and the estate is no longer trustworthy. Once that, tr that truth is accepted, the work of designing a zero trust architecture can commence. So Tari, I, I wanna ask you, so in thinking about zero trust, the aggressor is already in your network. How do you monitor, detect and remediate that? It's a big question. It's a big question and requires a lot of integrated answers to go with it. So I'll do my do my best. But I wanted to get into the uh, the aggressors are already inside the network. So zero trust has been around for quite some time. The uh, origination of it came from the Jericho Forum back in 2004. But if you look at Google Trends, zero trust was something that was bantered about even three years before that. Um, the problem was that organizations were fixated on this thing called defense in depth, which is basically layering technology upon technology and basically creating an, an onion skin, if you will, multiple onion skins. If one layer failed, another layer would, would uh, fill in. Unfortunately, organizations were still being compromised at an ever increasing rate. And so when Zero Trust started to um, basically formulate into an architecture. Defense in depth is a, is a concept. It's not an architecture. And the problem that we have today is many information security programs we've never properly architected. And one of the reasons why we wanted to do this deep dive based upon the NIST standard was it gives you the architectural wherewithal to design a true zero trust schema for your organization. So whereas defense in depth assumed that the aggressors were coming from the outside, barbarians at the gate, the firewall, if you will, now, as we've seen from many different types of research studies, Microsoft, FireEye, Mandiant, and so forth, is as aggressors, the bad guys, they can basically dwell inside a network, in some cases, for six months to a year, basically biding their time, watching what's going on, gathering the information that's necessary to strike at the crown jewels of an organization. So the zero trust basically looks at the lateral movement, assuming they're in there, and it says, okay, if you're already in there, I'm going to box you in. I'm going to make sure everything is securely uh, is secured between all connections, all requests, and nothing is trust. There is no implicit trust within a network anymore. So many have deployed zero trust at singular points without the luxury of an overall design or roadmap. This leads to incomplete and ineffectual zero trust deployments. So Mitch, if you wouldn't mind, talk to me from a FinServe perspective. Are you hearing of incomplete adoption of zero trust out there in the industry? And how do you get back on track? Absolutely. So the issue with zero trust is that people do bits and pieces. And really the answer to zero trust, to do it correctly, is to map it to the macro level NIST cybersecurity framework. All of the regulations, whether federal regulations that govern banks or state regulations that cover insurers, or frankly, securities regulations, SEC regulations, they all root back ultimately to the NIST cybersecurity framework. So it's key that if you're going to implement zero trust, you need to do that in the context of the cybersecurity framework so you don't skip around and do bits and pieces. And that's frankly been the primary issue with implementation is vendors come out and say, hey, 
we're doing the whole thing. We do end-to-end zero trust, but they do bits and pieces. And then when you try to map it back to the cybersecurity framework, you find gaps. To take that a little bit further, uh, Tari, I, I want to bring you in on this one. You know, you guys de- designed a, a really a checklist uh, uh, to go through and to make sure people are taking the right steps as they're trying to adopt zero trust within their organization. What step do you feel is most often missed as people are looking to do this? As, as Mitch said, it's the end-to-end architecture is missed. Now, the cybersecurity industrial complex has swooped in and basically um, what we would call zero trust washing announced a myriad of products, literally hundreds and hundreds of products that all seemingly are the silver bullet to addressing zero trust. And organizations have been lured into a false sense of confidence that they're actually deploying zero trust architecture by applying certain products. And it could be no further from the truth. Before, the, and to your, to your question, the very first thing, don't buy a single product until you have designed a proper architecture. And that looks at the business requirements, technical requirements, functional requirements, and also the implementation requirements, the standard layers of architecture that you would find in Zachman or Togoff, for example. When we talk about those layers uh, that, that Tari just brought up, what is the problem today with defense in depth and the many financial firms utilizing layered expensive security technologies to keep them, I'm air quoting here for everybody listening, safe? So if you think about defense in depth, uh, how it's been traditionally deployed, it's been, okay, let's put a security layer, a firewall, for example. Now let's put a layer of, are you allowed to access a database? Let's put a layer of, are you allowed to access a device, a storage facility, a cloud environment? So the depth here has historically been by pieces of infrastructure or at the database level or at the application level in terms of specific application level security. The problem with that is that these notions of perimeters are essentially flawed because you can be inside the perimeter and still be unsecured. And you may not even know that you are. So that if I'm, let's say, coming in remotely, as we know during the pandemic, most people are now remote workers, their local machines, their personal devices, their mobile phones may already have malware associated with it. And so they've essentially authenticated through those in-depth levels, the router, the firewall, the database security, application security. But because the device itself is infected with malware, it can now grab data out or it can grab IP addresses or it can grab other things. So historically, that device would have been trusted because you would have gotten in to the application and the um, network. But in reality you're not really trusted. So what Zero Trust says is just because you pass those gates doesn't mean you're in fact secure. You still could be just as insecure. So every single transaction has to be re-authenticated at the transaction level at the point in time when it occurs. Yeah, it's a snapshot at times, right? Right. It is that snapshot. It's not static. Because you you touch on it there, that hybrid work model, the, the, you know, whether it's a work from anywhere or, 
you know, partially in the office. Talk to me about the challenges that presents an organization as they're trying to adopt zero trust today. So to answer that question, I want to provide a, a slight plug for NIST for their zero trust architecture document. One of the things that is absolutely essential that they brought to the forefront is they look at it as an end-to-end solution, not just a technology uh, stack. And if you look at their, their criteria for what goes into the development of zero trust, you'll see many things that are part and parcel of the overall architecture. One in specific is asset hygiene which is to go to asking your question, answering your question. When you're looking at a bring your own device environment, when you're looking at having workers that are at home for, in some organizations, they may uh, end up working at home for the rest of their life with their company. As new organizations hire individuals, they want to work at home as well. So that's here here to stay. Not every organization can hire or can go out and acquire all the technology that's necessary for these home workers, so they'll allow them to bring their own device. So Zero Trust, what it does is it looks at making sure that the hygiene of those systems are actually, the providence of the hygiene is validated before they can even get an access request. Uh, and, and when you also look at continuous security monitoring is looking at the entire organization and feeding that information into sort of a zero trust engine, if you will, saying this this system is OK. It meets our it not only meets hygiene, but it meets principles of access control and need to know and least privilege. Let's talk on the financial world, Mitch. And, and when we look at these you know, mid-sized financial institutions, even larger, um, that definitely need zero trust, but they're facing challenges, budgets, legacy tools, and technology. What kind of advice do you give them? Well, firstly, I would say you have to look at the different tools that are most key, because you may not be able to afford to buy or implement all those tools at one time. So for example, things like a single sign-on platform, Uh, Okta as an example, Um, that's a good place to start because all of a sudden now we have one repository for all of the places to log into. Uh, You're going to want to look at stuff for regulatory compliance. Any of the financial services companies have to worry about regulatory compliance. So something like a metric stream, for example, which would allow you to do a monitoring for regulatory compliance. Um, You know, one of the uh, things about whether or not you're trusted. And that's what Tariq brought up earlier. And so things like, you know, uh, Intrust, for example, having some sort of PKI infrastructure. Uh, So pick and choose, understanding that while I've been pulling out those things, none of those are a complete solution. They are bits and pieces of the overall framework that you're going to want to deploy. But you can phase them in over time. It's not like I have to do all or nothing. I can phase the pieces in as long as you have a plan and you understand the risk that you're taking on by not phasing in other pieces right now. So you don't want to go in saying, oh, I've deployed zero trust. You want to go go in saying, I need to deploy 15 pieces in order to get an end-to-end zero trust solution. And by the way, this year I'm going to do four of that. And next year I'm going to do another five. And so I'm going to have a plan to implement that. So it may not happen in this study that you guys uh, have coming out here soon, you outlined 11 different companies in an example of zero trust technology mapping. And as you mentioned, you know, you, you kind of add some as you need to be 
as you look at these organizations, do you see consolidation happening? Do you see where this is going to be a, a even more streamlined for individuals? And, and Mitchell, I'll come to you for this. Yeah, well, generally speaking, we have been seeing M&A in security uh, companies over the last five to 10 years anyway. And we've seen that in insurance and banking and wealth management. That will continue to occur. So a lot of these independent standalone companies in the longer run will probably merge into uh, end-to-end solutions. Uh, The other thing is that, you know, as we moved into the cloud, the ability to integrate seamlessly end-to-end becomes easier, frankly, because now it's not what you're implementing in your host environment. You're no longer dependent on infrastructure in the host environment because now within the cloud, you can create some sort of consistency. So um, what we think is going to happen is that there will be ultimately emerging of these companies over time. And an end-to-end zero-trust solution will be something you probably in the longer run subscribe to as opposed to having to build out. Interesting. Tari, I'd love your take on that as well as as we have so much focus on organizations, keeping your organization safe. It's in the news every day where where different uh, large companies are are getting breached and and, um, bad actors getting in. Talk to me a little bit about the, the focus organizations need to have on building these tools, let alone having the conversation at the board level that we need to pay for this. Because that, that's, that's another challenge. And there are uh, numerous tools that organizations have, but you basically can almost compartmentalize them in four main categories. Um, one is going to be an identity and access management um, uh, platform, and that's going to handle your single sign-on and identity provisioning. There's also threat vulnerability management. So if you look at what Zero Trust Architecture is uh, calls out in terms of security information and event management and threat intelligence, you're also going to be looking at um, having a governance risk and compliance platform because Zero Trust uh, requires that you take a continuous look at compliance regulations and also governance. So you're gonna have these various different platforms. What is missing is sort of a a zero trust hub that connects these together. And for example, a policy assertion language where you have the policy information because zero trust is all driven by policy. That policy then has to be asserted into all these various different technology platforms. I don't ever see where we will have this one Uber platform that takes care of all of zero trust. The cybersecurity industrial complex will prevent that from happening just because there's too many products out there. But I do see that there would be an ilk of product that would be a zero trust hub that connects all of this. And uh, security software design, uh, I think is also going to be part and parcel of, of ZTA going forward. So identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, right? The the five keys. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Do you feel, Tari, that, that people focus too much on detect? Yeah. So I think one of the things that you'll, you'll find is that when an organization, if they were to sit back and do an honest assessment of the types of tools they have, and there've been a number of studies out there and it's not unusual, certainly for our large financial institutions, for them to have over 200 different disparate security technologies. If they align them to the NIST CSF 
uh, model and they find out says, oh, well, we are spending too much time on detecting and we're spending less time on protecting. Um, but also because of assumption of an assumption of breach is another concept that goes hand in hand with with zero trust because you assume the aggressors are in the network. So organizations need to switch to investing more in incident response than they do in conventional protection methodologies. Mitch, as you guys were putting this study together, uh, loved reading this. Tell me, what surprised you the most? Well, you know, I think what's surprising the most is how long it took for it to become something that everybody talked about. You know, this thing came out originally in 2004 as a concept, right? And it was discussed for a while and then kind of went on the back burner. And what brought it back, frankly, is two things, the pandemic and ransomware. <laughs> because people like big companies, like, you know, like my former company, AXA or CNA or other companies like that, very big companies, got hit with ransomware attacks. You know, banks got hit with ransomware attacks. That's unheard of, right? And they thought they were protected. And they were protected, but yet not enough because all they needed was somebody to connect them with the device that was infected with malware, even though that person had authenticated all the way through that malware was now behind the firewall and was able to communicate out through a port. And the next thing you know, all that data has been taken for ransom. So ransomware drove this kind of conversation again about Defense in depth doesn't seem to be fit for purpose for the attack vector that we're talking about. And we have literally millions of people working remotely now on all sorts of devices, by the way. So when we look at the convergence of the two, an old idea became new again. Hence, as I said, when we, re when we started the financial services executive partner service and said, what are CISOs talking about right now? What do they need help with? Zero trust far and away rises to the top. And that's why. Mitch just said, old ideas, new again. Where are we going to be with zero trust in 24, 36 months? Is it going to continue to evolve? Where do you see it going? I think, so if you look at that IBM study where it says that it's, uh, you know, there's a high level of adoption, it's almost misleading because it is not universally through the IT estate adopted. It is people are doing something about it. And I think organizations are going to realize that zero trust solves a number of problems. And I, and I want to just uh, uh, tack on to a point that Mitch made about um, ransomware. So if you're caught outside in a thunderstorm, lightning is all around you, the first thing you're taught is to get small right? And become less of a target. When you look at an IT estate attack surface, you want it to be as small as possible. A fundamental concept of zero trust is micro-segmentation. So even, even in a scenario where something were to happen, its containment is much smaller than it would be in a conventional information security architecture. Um, so I think what you're going to find is there's, there's going to be organizations that are going to band together and come up with different types of zero trust consortiums where these products will then start talking to one another. I think that is the biggest inhibitor right now is you don't have the ability 
for various products to, you know, basically instantiate the policies that are necessary to make zero trust live within the IT estate. Mitch, as, as we round out here, you know, talk to me a little bit. It, it was great that you guys put out the, this study. Tell me a little bit about the executive partner services you guys have. You really reach beyond the CISO, but really hitting some key areas that are a focus for a lot of organizations today. Thanks for asking me that, JD. The main thing about the executive partnership service is it's focused in on executive personas. And so what we're doing is we're doing a charter advisor meeting uh, in late October for those folks that want to participate uh, on the uh, CTO, chief architecture, CIO side. We will be doing a charter advisor meeting as well later this year or early next year for CISOs. And what we want is folks to reach out to us to become charter advisors so they can tell us what's most important to them, where we should focus our research, what are the topics they want us discussing. The other thing we're doing as part of this is creating research councils, which again, no cost to any participant. The idea is that they would tell us areas they'd like us to focus in on, what they'd like to find out about what others are doing. Zero trust is an example. And then we're going to create surveys and, re- and essentially survey the community in the research council, get the responses, turn that into a published study, and then share that with the members of the research council. That research council will become a community where we'll be able to meet up virtually and then hopefully someday in the not too distant future physically again and uh, be able to discuss these themes, network, uh, and find out what's most important to this community of people. So that's what executive partnership service is, and that's why it's important. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mitch. Thank you so much, Tari, for letting me pick your brain a little bit. The survey is going to be released, or the study is going to be released, rather, in a few weeks. You can go to ite-navarica, that's A-I-T-E-N-O-V-A-R. R-I-C-A.com. We'll also put a link on our website as well, just so people can get there. Thank you so much, Tari and Mitch. Thank you. Sure thing. Thanks again to Tari and Mitch for joining us for this episode of CDN Media's Solution Spotlight. To catch past episodes of our podcast, you can visit cdmmedia.com or get it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm J.D. Miller, and remember, keep connected.